He was born in South Africa and went to school at Moody Bible Institute. Today, he shares Yeshua with Jewish people everywhere he goes. Now, what are his secrets and what works best for starting a conversation with a Jewish friend? What are some of their most significant objections to Christ and how can we address them? Well, that's our focus on an upcoming segment of The Land and the Book. Hey, thanks for connecting with us today. The uh, us I refer to is Dr. Charlie Dyer, a noted Israel expert and Old Testament scholar. And I'm John Geiger. Great to connect, Charlie. John, it's great being back with you in the studio. It's just fun to talk about Israel with you. And no shortage of stories, as is always the case in the Middle East. We'll dig into this week's look at current events. Israel's next election, that would be its fourth in less than two years, is now just over two weeks away. So what are the latest developments in what seems to have become an election nightmare? And it is indeed, John, a nightmare. Uh, The latest polls suggest it's very possible neither the right nor the left will end up with sufficient seats to form a government. And if that were to happen, Israel would be forced to hold still another election. Now, no one wants that to take place. So there will be incredible pressure on all sides to compromise, to form a government, to do whatever it's going to take to make this the final election, at least for the next few years. But the reality is that the different parties are hopelessly fractured. Now, here's where things stand right now. The different right-of-center parties will likely win more than half the seats in the Knesset. The problem is that two of those parties, New Hope and Yisrael Batenu, have said they won't sit in a government led by Netanyahu or that includes the religious parties. New Hope's led by Gideon Sa'ar, who broke away from Netanyahu in the Likud party and who has called for Netanyahu to be removed from power. His party is expected to end up with 13 seats. And the Yisrael Batenu party is led by Avigdor Lieberman, who's opposed to the ultra-Orthodox and their refusal to serve in the military. Though Netanyahu's party is expected to garner the most seats in the Knesset, about 28, that still leaves him far short of the 61 needed to form a majority government. The two main religious parties together are expected to have 14 seats, making a total of 42 seats for a potential coalition. Now, if Naftali Bennett's Yamina party wins 12 seats, and if they agree to join with Netanyahu, that still only brings him to 54 seats. There's one other more radical right-wing party, that's expected to gain five seats, and that would put Netanyahu at 59 seats, too short of what he needs. Hmm. Uh, on the other side of the aisle, Yair Lapid's party is expected to win 19 seats, making it the second largest party. They would join with Labor and Blue and White, and that gives a total of 31 seats. Now that leaves New Hope and Yisrael Batenu on the right with 21 seats, and the Arab parties with nine seats. If all those parties join together against Netanyahu, they could end up with 61 seats. But The political and religious makeup of that coalition makes it virtually unworkable. The Mm. only thing they share in common would be a desire to get rid of Netanyahu. (laughs) The next two weeks are crucial for this election, John. Each party is going to pull out all the stops to encourage their supporters to get out and vote while trying to sling as much mud as possible on their opponents. And there's a lot of mud to go around right now. The smallest change in voter turnout could have a major impact on the final vote totals and the ultimate ability of one side or the other to form a coalition. Boy, we thought elections here were kind of muddy. Wow. (laughs) As President Biden moves forward with his foreign policy, what changes are we seeing in the U.S.'s approach to the Middle East, and what might the future hold, Charlie? Yeah, you know, we've actually been sending mixed messages to the region. On the one hand, we've signaled that we're more open to dialogue with Iran. We want that dialogue. We're wanting to enter the nuclear agreement. 
but at the same time, we're holding off some of our historic allies almost at arm's length. For example, we suspended the $23 billion sale of F-35 fighter jets to the United Arab Emirates, along with a major sale of arms to Saudi Arabia. The administration also declassified an intelligence report that claimed the assassination of journalist Jamal Khashoggi was approved by the Saudi Crown Prince. Now, that'll likely be followed by other actions to penalize Saudi Arabia for its violation of human rights, while we're not talking about Iran's violations of human rights. Now, it it doesn't seem to be a coincidence as well that news organizations began reporting on work being done by Israel at their Demona nuclear reactor. Uh, Some believe the information was leaked to news organizations to undercut Israel's opposition to Iran's nuclear program. Now, all these items together seem to point to a pivot on the part of our administration away from Israel and the Sunni Arabs in an attempt to re-engage with Iran and its Shiite allies. And yet, that's not the whole story. Hmm. Iranian-backed militant groups launched a rocket attack against U.S. targets in Iraq, and we responded by attacking the militants on the Syrian-Iraqi border. Uh, The U.S. was also closely following an apparent Iranian attack on an Israeli-owned ship in the Gulf of Oman. Israel responded to that attack by bombing several Iranian military sites in Syria, apparently with our approval. Now, these mixed signals have made it unclear what our ultimate policy really is. Will the U.S. continue to respond strongly to Iranian threats, or will we ultimately buckle to Iranian pressure in the hopes of getting Iran back to the negotiating table? Will we pull back on our military commitments to Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states? And if we do, will those states buckle to U.S. pressure or take their money to other countries like Russia, France, or even Israel to purchase arms? Right now, the ultimate policy goals still appear unclear. From Moody Radio, it's The Land and the Book. Dr. Charlie Dyer is our host. I'm John Geiger. We're working our way through a list of stories that make up the current events that describe the Middle East for the week. Story number three, the pilgrim road in Jerusalem that ran between the Pool of Siloam and the temple is still being uncovered. But archaeologists now believe they know who was responsible for its construction. Uh, What's the latest on this amazing archaeological find? Yeah, this is an incredible discovery. The entire roadway is actually being excavated underground, underneath the houses in the area. You know, John, it was just a little over a year ago I had the opportunity to walk on part of that roadway as it was still being uncovered. They were getting ready to open that part to the public when the pandemic closed down tourism. But the excavation itself has continued, and one of the discoveries has actually helped redefine history. Most historians thought the road had been built by Herod the Great as part of his temple construction project. Now, that would date the roadway to between 37 and 4 BC. But an analysis of 100 coins found beneath the street pushed the date of construction to a later time. In fact, right to the time of Jesus. Uh, Those coins dated to the time of Pontius Pilate, who served as prefect of Judea for about a decade, beginning in A.D. 26. The archaeologists believe the street could have taken up to 10 years to complete, probably coinciding with Pilate's time as prefect. Now, Jesus' public ministry ran from A.D. 30 to A.D. 33, putting it right in the middle of this construction project. You know, tourists who go want to sing, I walk today where Jesus walked. Well, this new street is about as close as they can get to having that be absolutely true. Since the stones were in place for only a few decades before the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, the street looks almost brand new. Imagine walking for nearly a third of a mile on a street that was once 26 feet wide. 
on stones that look virtually brand new and then realize Jesus and his disciples walked on those same stones. It's an experience like that that makes visiting Jerusalem so powerful. And John, I can hardly wait to get back and see the progress that's been made on this amazing discovery. Boy, that is mind-blowing. Charlie, uh, back to your earlier visit, though, a year ago. How big was the section that you did see and walk upon? How wide, how long? Uh, the, the width was probably uh, 10 to 15 feet, so not the full width. But I walked about 100 yards on it uh, oh. from where they took us in all the way down to the Pool of Siloam. Our fourth story, one of the sharpest battles over climate change, focuses on the impact of cows on the environment. What exactly is the problem here? And more importantly, what's the latest innovation from Amazing Israel that might help resolve the issue? Yeah, I've got to start by saying I love beef. I worked for a time in high school on a dairy farm, and that's why I think I found this report to be rather fascinating. Most people don't realize that a herd of 300 cows can generate a ton of liquid waste every hour. That's the equivalent of the wastewater generated by a town of 40,000 people. In the U.S., farms generate about 100 times more manure than the human sewage processed at municipal wastewater plants. Uh, Worldwide, hundreds of millions of tons of untreated or improperly treated animal waste is discharged into waterways or absorbed into the ground, contaminating crops and drinking water. And that's where PolyCleanTech comes in. This Israeli company has developed Biolizer. It's a system that allows for the eco-friendly management of both human and animal waste. The system can convert a half ton of animal manure into odorless organic fertilizer in one hour. The fertilizer is potassium rich and free of pathogens. It can be stored for farmers to use or sell or trade. You know, John, animal poop isn't something most of us like to think about, but it's a real problem. And thankfully, Israel's PolyClean Tech and their Biolizer system might just make solving that problem and helping save our environment in the process a little easier. Thanks for that look at current events. We'll look forward to your devotional as well later on. First, though, David Barker, Sharing Yeshua. What are his insights and how can they help us share our faith? That's next on The Land and the Book. He was born in South Africa went to school at Chicago's Moody Bible Institute. Today, he shares Yeshua with Jewish people everywhere he goes. What are his secrets? What works best for starting a conversation with a Jewish friend? What are some of their most significant objections to Christ, and how can you and I address them? Well, that's our focus next on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Welcome to this second segment of our one-hour flyover of the Middle East. Hey, if we've never met, my name is John Geiger, and I've had the privilege of traveling to Israel seven times. And, you know, I still feel like a kindergartner as far as connecting the passages of Scripture with the places in the Holy Land. I guess that's why we keep Charlie Dyer close at hand, though, right? Hey, I want you to meet David Barker. He's a Jewish believer born and raised in South Africa. His wife, Betsy, is a pastor's kid from Boston, New England, and In 2015, they moved to Chicago to attend Moody Bible Institute to better equip his family for God's calling on their lives. And of course, David has recently graduated from Moody. Currently, he's serving with Life in Messiah, an organization which has been sharing God's heart for the Jewish people all the way back to 1887. David and Betsy have four beautiful children whom they homeschool, Benjamin, and then twin girls, Shiloh and Simcha, and their youngest, Yehuda. Shalom, David, and uh, thanks for connecting with us today on The Land and the Book. 
Hi, John. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, and it's a pleasure to be with you. So why Jewish ministry? I mean, you could be doing any number of things with your life right now. Yes, I think what happened was, looking at, at how fast the world is changing, we came to the realization that we need to be dedicating our lives to working in the kingdom. And as a Jewish believer, we understand clearly that the Scripture has a priority of how to do that. And we read that in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And then it says, to the Jew first. And so being a Jewish believer, we understood that this has been something that has really been neglected by the church as a whole. Mm -hmm. And we felt that we were well equipped to go and share the gospel with the Jewish people. And um, that's where it started. Yeah. Let's cut right to a story, uh, a story about an encounter that you've had in your ministry, perhaps with Life in Messiah, a story of, of sharing Yeshua with someone who maybe had never considered him before. What comes to mind? Well, it, it was, this was before even starting with Life in Messiah. We attended a conservative synagogue on a Saturday, and we'd go to church on a Sunday. And the reason for that is to live a Jewish life it is very much cultural, and it's very difficult to do outside of a Jewish community. So we engaged with a, a synagogue uh, in Boston, and it was interesting. We were there for two years. Uh, the rabbi and several of the people that attended there knew that we were believers. As long as we promised not to talk about Jesus or anything like that, uh, we were welcome. Huh. And what happened was it was challenging because obviously wanting to share the gospel uh, with people is what we've been called to do. And so having that restriction was, was a challenge. However, the Lord always has his way. So we were there for about two years. And after a two-year period, there came a time during the high holidays when several people got wind of the fact that we were believers and they pressured the rabbi for us to leave. And uh, so I got a call from the head of the religious committee. And it was kind of interesting because he said to me, I hear that you are Messianic Jews, and um, I'm not exactly sure what that is. Could you tell me? Hmm. And this was great because he gave me the opportunity to answer the question of why we believe what we do and yeah. who Jesus is, according to the scriptures. So in that sense, God had his own way with how to share the gospel with the Jewish people. And then after that, because we're asked to leave, several of the local or the weekly uh, people that attended service invited us into their homes, hmm. saying, why have they asked you to leave? What is it that you believe that they don't want you here anymore? And it just gave us an open door to share the gospel. So this is a great story because in the way that the Lord works, uh, we don't have to worry about how to do things or how to share because he will have his way. All we need to do is show up, be a faithful testimony, and, and share with others what God is doing and the gospel message. Born and raised in South Africa, David Barker is a Jewish believer who joins us today on The Land and the Book. Let's, uh, let's define a term here, Messianic Judaism. What is that? So Messianic Judaism essentially means Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So generally, Jews will say, we don't believe in Jesus, he's not the Messiah, or he is the Messiah for the Gentiles. But that's not true, because as we know from the Scripture, either Jesus is the Messiah for all, or he's not the Messiah at all. And so Messianic Judaism essentially came about in probably the, the 70s, when Jews who believed in Jesus said, we can be Jews and believe in Jesus at the same time. Because typically the history of 
uh, Jewish believers is that they were told they need to be Christians and they can no longer be Jewish. Hmm. So in the 70s, through uh, a whole movement, people began to say, we are Jews, we believe in Jesus, and from that came what is now known as the Messianic movement. Messianic obviously meaning Messiah or Messianic Judaism. So what exactly then is Messianic Jewish identity, and why would that be uh, critical? So Messianic Jewish identity is saying, I am a Jewish believer who believes in Jesus. And why that is critical is because Jews say Jews do not believe in Jesus, which is false. In fact, if we look at the whole of the New Testament, all of the first believers in Jesus were Jewish. So a Jewish believer is important because it means that God has been faithful to his promises, that God has kept a remnant for himself, that throughout history there's always been Jews that have believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And without that identity, if there were no Jewish believers, then God would not have been faithful to keep his promise, which is to keep a remnant to himself. And so as we identify as Jewish believers, we are really testifying to the faithfulness of God. Hmm. I love that story that you shared of uh, being in homes with folks out in Boston who were curious about your faith. What about more recently uh, in the Chicago area, a story of someone that you've had a chance to share Yeshua with? In the Chicago area, there's a, we live um, in Lincolnwood, Skokie area, and there's a number of Orthodox Jewish communities. And we've had several opportunities to invite, especially the younger generation, into our home for what we call a Shabbat dinner and be able to share who Messiah is. So a lot of even Orthodox Jewish people, while they are very religious, don't actually believe the scriptures, or they don't actually believe in God at all. Mm. And so we've had a number of opportunities to engage the youth, let's say people in their 20s, at a Shabbat dinner where we just sit around the table and we start to talk about their beliefs and what we believe, and we share uh, Jesus as Messiah. And we tend to do that um, most effectively by going back to the scripture and going back to the to the Old Testament, or what we call the Tanakh, to say, look, the ideas that we have, that there's a Messiah that's coming that will, that will um, be representative of us and take our place, is found, for example, in Isaiah 53. And that's the way that we talk through the scriptures and share with others. I'm going to ask you to do something difficult here and kind of zoom out and look at the evangelical church in America and give us a report card. All right. What are your thoughts about the level of care and concern that Gentile believers show toward their non-believing Jewish friends and neighbors? What, what grade would you give us? It is a very broad question, but I would say not a very good grade. So it is out maybe a D, hmm. if you want to put it into that system. And the reason is that, unfortunately, for the last 2,000 years, the Christianity or the Christian churches have not had a good reputation when it comes to sharing the gospel with the Jewish people. In fact, most of the time, as I said earlier, Jews that believed in Jesus were told they could no longer be Jewish but should be Christian. And so a lot of the problems that we have within the church not sharing the gospel to the Jewish people is because of things like ignorance, not understanding that there's a priority to the Jew, not understanding that the church has not replaced Israel, that God is still faithful to his promises. Uh, if we remember, if we look in the scripture, in Jeremiah 31, 31, the new covenant, which is the one that Jesus inaugurated at the Last Supper, is a covenant with Israel, not a covenant with the church. And the Gentile churches have been grafted into this covenant. So what it means is that the Jewish people and Israel are still the conduit through which God is going to bless this world. Hmm. 
And the churches, for some reason or other, have forgotten the priority to the Jew first, as we've spoken in Romans. And so I think that a lot of the churches that are missing reaching out to Jewish people is because they've not understood that priority. Sharing Yeshua, that's our focus today on the land and the book as we talk with David Barker of Life and Messiah. Okay, let's make this real personal. Uh, My cousin married a Jewish girl. We adore her. Uh, She is a lot of fun, and uh, she is just a fierce advocate for her mother-in-law and uh, just takes care of her so beautifully, even as the mother-in-law is now in a nursing home. Bottom line is, anytime I've ever tried to have a conversation with her about spiritual things, I mean, the door is not just shut, it's not just slammed, it's clanged shut. She wants no conversation whatsoever. And I don't know why we can't just dialogue about these things civilly, since we're, we're reasonable friends otherwise. What is your assessment based on the little that I've already shared you, and what do you suggest? So that is very common, and we must remember that the battle that we engage in is spiritual warfare. It's a spiritual battle. It's not a physical one. It's not her that's rejecting the conversation. But there's a, there's a vice that holds Jewish people from believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is, we, again, we read it in the scriptures where in Romans it says they've been blinded, not for, forever or permanently, but for a period of time. And so the best way to break through that is through prayer through prayer and to just love them as your neighbor Mm. and let the Lord do the work and the Lord will bring about a time or a conversation where they would be open to that. And so while we are enthusiastic about sharing the gospel, we must wait on the Lord for these things because it is him that that draws them closer to himself. And again, we just need to be there and available when the time comes to have that conversation. What's a common witnessing or relational mistake that we make that would be easy to overcome, an easy fix on our part, David? What do you think? One thing that we make as evangelicals, a mistake that we make, is not understanding the history of the church in relation to the Jewish people. It is not a good history at all. We've excluded them. We've persecuted them. And so if we don't understand that history, the common mistake is just to think that Jesus is something good uh, for the Jewish people. And while in essence it is, the way that that is communicated without understanding the history misses a large part of the problem. Hmm. We have to understand that the church has not had a good relationship with the Jewish people. And I think that we need to be able to admit that and acknowledge that. And then also go to the fact that what the church has done in the name of Jesus is not what the Scripture teaches, and not what any uh, believer in Jesus as the Messiah would promote. And in that way, I think just understanding the place that they're coming from, understanding their hurts, would be really helpful to the church to be able to communicate a message uh, that is empathetic to the Jewish people. You know, I never heard that from anyone before, that... uh that it would be wise to own up, so to speak, and and even to apologize. Am I hearing you right there, David? Yes, I would say that we have to recognize where we've gone wrong. Yeah. Um, And where we've gone wrong as the church is, too often the church has said, we have taken the place of the Jewish people in Israel, and it's all about the church, and this is not true. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can acknowledge that the Scripture says that the Jewish people are still beloved of God, that they are still important to Him, and the church has not taken the place of Israel, I think that is a key understanding that needs to be, or conversation that needs to be had. Because too often I think the problem is the church has placed themselves in the shoes of Israel and wants to 
appropriate all of those promises for themselves, which is not the case. God has a specific plan for Israel, and he's got a specific plan for the church, and both are very good. David, we've got a minute left, and I'm going to give it to you, inviting you to pray for us who need to reach out with kindness and compassion and love toward our Jewish friends and neighbors and relatives. Would you pray a prayer that would empower us to go out? Yes. Alvino Makaino, our Father, our King, we know that you are faithful, Father God, and we know that we are just vessels. Lord, our primary purpose is to glorify you, and Father God, you have a way that you've established for that to be done. Lord, we pray that your will be done on earth, Lord, that your body of Messiah would be made up as a one new man of Jew and Gentile. And Lord, I ask that those who are listening that are sensitive to to this issue of sharing the gospel with the Jewish people, Lord, that you would empower them by your spirit to enable them to have the right words, the right opportunities, and to fulfill the commission that you've given, Father God, that we are to share the gospel to the Jew first. And we pray this in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus our Messiah. Amen. Amen. David Barker, a Messianic believer from South Africa, who serves with Life in Messiah. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for carving out time to be with us. You're welcome, and I so appreciate uh, you having me on the call today and being able to share about why sharing the gospel with the Jewish people is something that is a responsibility for all of us in the church. Well, don't go away. More to come on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Charlie's anxious to answer your questions. Stick around for more on The Land and the Book. Great to have your company on today's edition of The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, excited to be digging into another look at your questions. You know, we're all curious about Scripture, and when we bump into those questions that make us scratch our heads, well, that's what this segment is all about. Here we go with question one from Dave. In Isaiah 4, verses 5 and 6, we see a prediction that God would be a cloud by day, protecting from heat, and a fire by night, warming and giving light for Israel. When do you think this will occur? What future period? And what is all this protecting them from? Yeah, in light of the uh, context there, I think chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 are being fulfilled, he says, in the day when, as he quotes it, the branch of the Lord will arise in verse 2. Well, that's messianic imagery. So the context is the time when the Messiah is going to arise to redeem the remnant of his people. And that imagery of smoke by day and fire by night does come directly from the time of the Exodus. Uh, It pictures God providing guidance and protection. Uh, In fact, in verse 6, he uses words like shelter, shade, refuge, and hiding place, which are pointing to God's protective care. Uh, So what I think he's picturing here is that uh, after having suffered at the hands of so many for so long, God is promising to protect his remnant from any possible person or group that would seek to do him harm. And of course, the imagery is during that kingdom age, when the Messiah arrives, he's going to protect his people. A question from Hal, what are your thoughts on Ezekiel 38 and 39? Many people look at this as just an invasion. What I see is an occupation, but this is different than God's deliverance. Those are two separate timelines. What's your perspective? 
Yeah, no, I, I have more of a problem seeing this being an occupation rather than a, a one-time invasion. I think it is just a one-time invasion, and here's why I'd say that. The words and the images that are used in the passage describe a, a sudden attack rather than some prolonged occupation. Uh, for example, God says this invading army is going to advance like a storm. Their goal is to invade a land, to plunder and loot uh, and carry off spoil. So you get the impression it's not an occupying force, but a, a sudden invasion. And God also links this judgment on Gog to the actual time of the attack, not to some time afterward. He says this is what will happen in that day when Gog attacks the land of Israel. Uh, and then he says, in my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time there'll be an earthquake. So the judgment seems to begin uh, with that earthquake, which takes place as the army's invading. So it's it's not an occupation as much as it is a a sudden attack that was a surprise attack, and the only thing that stops this invading force is God himself. It's the land and the book from Moody Radio. Dr. Charlie Dyer is answering questions that have come to us via email. You can email yours at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Roger says, we continue to enjoy your weekly podcasts on events in Israel. Appreciate your experience, knowledge, and perspective. Well, thanks for that comment. And he goes on to say, my wife and I listened to last Saturday's podcast returning from a family reunion in Missouri. The question was asked, do Muslims worship the same God that we worship? The speaker's answer was no, because they reject the God that we worship as fully revealed in Jesus. Wouldn't this also mean that the Jews who reject Jesus also don't worship the same God we do? What about all the Old Testament believers who never had the benefit of the New Testament account of Jesus as the complete revelation of God? Why do Christians think it's important to ask and answer this question about religious Jews and Muslims who value the Hebrew Scriptures, especially in the context of evangelizing them? Yeah, well, I think the issue is really whether Jesus is God uh, is important, and it's important because it lies at the heart of the Trinity. Christians worship a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Islam specifically says God does not have a son. In that sense, we don't worship the same God because they don't acknowledge Jesus as God's son, and that's important. If Jesus wasn't God, then his sacrifice on the cross wasn't sufficient to pay the penalty for our sin. Now, in terms of the Jews, uh, you're correct. Uh, Most Jews don't believe Jesus is God, but there is one big difference. They might reject Jesus, But the Old Testament scriptures don't reject the deity of Jesus. Just some quick examples. Isaiah 9, you know, a child is born, a son is given. It says that child's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Mm. Everlasting Father, which means Father of Eternity. He's he's the one who gave birth to eternity itself, this child. Micah 5, 2 says this child's going to be born in Bethlehem, but it says his origins are from of old, from ancient times. That is, the coming messianic king existed before his physical birth. I could go on with others, but one favorite one, and I'll end with this. Proverbs 30, verse 4, asks some questions. Who's gone up to heaven and come down? Who's gathered the wind in the hollow of his, of his hand? Who's wrapped up the waters in his cloak? Who's established all the ends of the earth? What's his name, it asks. And of course, we would say, well, it's God. And then it goes on and says, what's his name and the name of his son? Tell me if you know. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that God has a son. So the Old Testament does point to the Messiah as being the preexistent son of God. A Jewish individual wouldn't have had to know everything about Jesus, but there was enough revelation to point out to them that God did have a son and his name is Jesus. Well, Pat writes us all the way from Moscow, uh, Moscow, Pennsylvania. And uh, says, I love your program. It's on my local station twice a week, and I do my best to listen both times in case I miss something the first time. My question is one of curiosity. Did the Levites ever wash off the blood that was sprinkled on the altar or other items, or did it just 
remain there forever. Same question goes for the anointing oil on the robes of the priests, etc. Seems like their beauty would be lessened, but maybe that's not the issue. Yeah, well, the Bible doesn't give us a specific answer, so take this with a grain of salt. Uh, we do know God was concerned about cleanliness and holiness. You know, in Exodus 30, Aaron and his sons were told to wash with water that they won't die when they enter the tent of meeting. And in a symbolic vision, uh, the prophet Zechariah saw Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, uh, a term referring to the pre-incarnate Christ, by the way. And Zechariah says, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. Well, the angel commands that the filthy clothes be removed and says, see, I've taken away your sin and put rich garments on you. Now, that's a symbolic vision of God's cleansing of his people. But my point here is, Zechariah presents the idea of the high priest being clothed in filthy garments while standing before the Lord as something that would have been almost inconceivable. Now, if I put all that together, it leads me to assume the clothes of the high priests were cleaned after performing their duties in the temple or the tabernacle. Uh, in uh, Jeremiah 2.22, God tells Judah, though you wash yourselves with soda, with lye, use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt's before me. Well, that, that tells me that they did have that idea of cleaning things, of cleansing them. And uh, in the same way, if the clothes of regular people were washed, well, I assume the same was true, especially of the high priestly garments, knowing that they were standing in the presence of God. Great answer. Thanks, Charlie. Joe says, I listen on WTLR in Pennsylvania. Love the program. Love the connections to current events and the scriptures. Recently, he says, I've run across an ad for the Israel Bible. It looks fascinating, but they use the word Hashem in place of God. I read an article about the usage of Hashem, and it almost sounded like it didn't matter what name you give to God. Is that a correct understanding of Hashem, and is the Israel Bible worth having in one's library? Yeah, and I've got to start by saying I have concerns about this project uh, based on what they have said about it. I don't have a copy of the Bible myself. Uh, here's my problem. First, promoting a Bible for Christians that leaves out the New Testament well, makes a statement that I think is dangerous. Mm. When Paul said all scriptures inspired by God, he was referring to both the Old and New Testament scriptures. In a day of growing Bible illiteracy, I'm concerned we're suggesting that a Jewish understanding of the Hebrew scriptures is somehow more important than knowing the whole counsel of God. We ought to be promoting the study of all God's word. But second, I do have a problem with the use of Hashem, which literally means the name in place of God, you know, technically in place of Yahweh or the Tetragrammaton, that four-letter personal name of God. This goes back to the rabbis, but there's no evidence that God's name wasn't pronounced by those living in Old or New Testament times. I see nothing in the Bible that requires us to do that. In fact, I see just the opposite. Uh, but finally, I have a problem with their emphasis on study notes, as they would say it, illuminating the wisdom of the Jewish sages. Well, when I read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I find him saying, you've heard that it was said, but I say unto you, uh, here and throughout his ministry, Jesus condemned the religious leaders for placing tradition above the clear teaching of the word of God. As he said in Mark 7, 9, you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So having said that, I would prefer to stick with the Bible and with uh, study notes that help explain what the Bible actually is saying. Paul writes in Matthew 1, 5, it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Who was this Rahab? The timeline doesn't add up for her to be the Rahab of the fall of Jericho. What's going on? Yeah, and actually, I think the Rahab in there is Rahab the harlot from Joshua too. But your question about fitting it into the genealogical timeline, eh, it's a little bit more complex. Here's what I would say. We do know that Salmon was the son of Nashon. Nashon was in charge of the fighting men of Judah during the time of the Exodus. So that would make this son Salmon the son at the time of the conquest, and that fits with Rahab the harlot. Uh, the problem is, 
that there's only four generations, you know, from Salmon to Boaz to Obed to Jesse to David in 360 years. So uh, at least to me, it looks like there must be some names missing from that list. Now, I don't have a problem with that. It looks like for the purpose of genealogies, they didn't necessarily list every single person, but rather they traced the line back through the most notable ancestors. Uh, we see something similar to that in, uh, in Matthew's genealogy when he skips over some of the kings of Judah. Uh, but my point is, I think he's listing the major individuals, and I do think that that Rahab is the Rahab from the time of Joshua. And those are great questions, Charlie. We've covered a lot of ground today, eh? Uh, we have. Always do. And we love it when you write us with your question, The Land and the Book, at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional is next, right here. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger asking, what's your favorite book in the Bible? That's a tough question. Maybe a bit unfair. I'm not sure I could answer. I do know this. The older I get, the more I'm drawn to the Psalms. The honesty, the transparency that's there. The reality that life is sometimes brutal. It's all there in the pages of the Psalms. Psalm 127 is exactly where we're headed in Charlie Dyer's devotional coming up. We're going to get to that after we take in this perspective from somebody who's traveled to the Holy Land, the very place where these psalms originate. And now, this Holy Land experience. Hi, my name is Judy, and um, although all the experiences I've had on this trip have been really phenomenal, I couldn't have imagined how exciting they would be. The one thing that stands out for me so far is the day that I was baptized in the Jordan River. And it wasn't a fact of, oh, I was baptized in the Jordan. I felt strongly that coming here, this was something that God wanted me to make a recommitment of my faith. You know, I'm not falling away from the Lord or anything, but I am turning 60 on this trip. We will be in Jerusalem on November 9th. And I felt strongly that as a husband and a wife renew their wedding vows, that God wanted me to make a public declaration of my love for him and the fact that my life is turned over to him. And so I had made that decision along with God to do that at the River Jordan. I'm very happy about it. Thanks for sharing that with us. You know, there's nothing better when you're having trouble going to sleep at night, or maybe you woke up in the middle of the night, than pondering a psalm. I've tried to memorize a number of them, and boy, it's so good to just rethink these thoughts, these great psalms in those troubled moments of our lives. Charlie, Psalm 127 is a great psalm, and what do you got for us uh, in today's devotional? Sometimes the re-release of a song is more popular than the original. If you've ever watched the 1942 movie Casablanca, you remember Ilsa walking up to Sam the piano player and saying, Play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. The song was immortalized by the movie, but you probably didn't know it was actually written 11 years earlier for the 1931 Broadway musical Everybody's Welcome. It was an okay song in the musical, but its enduring popularity came from its reuse in the film. There's a song in the Bible with a similar history. It was originally composed by King Solomon, who was a prolific songwriter. 1 Kings 4.32 says he wrote 1,005 songs. But of that large number, only two made it into the book of Psalms, 
Israel's National Songbook. And of those two, one made it, so to speak, as a re-release to be used in a totally different context. It's Psalm 127. Our study of this psalm takes us to the crowded city of Jerusalem, which is packed with pilgrims who've gathered for one of Israel's annual feasts. The narrow streets are jammed and people are sleeping wherever they can find room to unroll their blankets. It's a time of excitement, but it's also a time when patience can wear thin. And that's why a special group of psalms were sung on these occasions. They're called the Songs of Ascents, songs to be sung by the pilgrim as they ascended or went up to Jerusalem for the feasts. The collection is found in our Bibles from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. Ten of the 15 Psalms are anonymous, but four were written by David and one by Solomon. It's possible these songs were gathered into a collection sometime after the Babylonian captivity. Whatever their original setting, their re-release, if you will, as part of this collection gave them a new significance for the nation. And with that in mind, let's look at Psalm 127. The Psalm has two stanzas and three themes. The first stanza is found in verses 1 and 2, and the second in verses 3 to 5. The first stanza focuses on the three themes of God as our builder, our protector, and our provider. First, he's our builder. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Perhaps Solomon first wrote this psalm as he was building God's temple, or maybe his own palace. But as the psalm made its way into this collection, the house became a metaphor for all of life. Success in life usually comes through hard work, but if our work isn't aligned with and supported by God, then ultimately it'll fail. Solomon then changes themes and focuses on God as our protector. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep watch in vain. We all seek safety and security. We put locks on our doors and passwords on our computers. Nationally, we spend billions on defense. But Solomon reminds his readers that ultimate security comes from God. Without his protection, we have no real security. Solomon switches to his third theme in verse 2. In addition to being our builder and our protector, God is also our provider. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Solomon is picturing life in an agrarian society. He's not saying God wants us to be lazy. The book of Proverbs has much to say about hard work. But in the end, the increase comes from God. He ultimately provides everything necessary for the crops to grow, even at night when we're asleep. In verses 3 to 5, Solomon changes illustrations. But his three themes remain the same, though in reverse order. He now stresses that God is our provider, then our protector, and then our builder. He does this by focusing on the blessings of children. Now, In our society, these verses can sometimes be misunderstood. So let me say something right at the beginning. Solomon is not writing to say that sons are better than daughters, nor is he making a statement about family planning or birth control, and he's not saying God wants us to have as many children as possible. Rather, he focuses on something highly valued in his culture as an illustration to again remind his readers that God is the ultimate source of blessing. In a society that attached a high value to large families, Solomon states that even children come from God. Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Lest they be tempted to brag about their large families, Solomon reminds his listeners that God is the ultimate provider and children are his gift. God is also the protector. The children God provides are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. 
In a culture that viewed large families as a means of safety and protection, a man with many children was like a warrior going to battle with a full quiver of arrows. But Solomon is reminding them that even this protection ultimately comes from God. Remember, children are a gift of the Lord. Solomon ends his song much as he began it, focusing on God as our builder, the one who advances our cause and guarantees our success. And he does this by continuing to focus on the benefits of the children God provides. Those who have been blessed by God with children are men who would not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gates. Being blessed by God doesn't mean we won't face opposition or obstacles. The gates were the courthouse of that day, and Solomon is picturing a court scene where this righteous person has been accused by his enemies. But his children are there to stand beside him as both his witnesses and his allies. He doesn't have to face the opposition alone. God's provision of children helps assure success. Our time in Jerusalem is almost over. The feast has ended, and all the pilgrims will soon begin their journey home. But what does God want us to remember from Psalm 127? I think it's this. Ultimate success in life comes from God. Too many Christians today live as functional atheists, paying lip service to God but acting as if everything depended on their efforts alone. Solomon wants us to remember that God is our builder, our protector, and our provider. To think otherwise is vain. So how dependent are you on God? This might be a good time to take stock of your life and to make sure God is indeed your builder, your protector, and your provider. You know, I have to confess, uh, that devotional from Charlie caught me at a couple of different points. You know, I like to be, quote, independent, as if such a thing is possible. I mean, we're dependent on God for our very next breath. Where do we get the idea that we're self-sustaining? We're going to get out there and do it ourselves. Not a good idea. Instead, as Charlie has said, let's make sure that God is indeed our builder, protector, and provider. Have you emailed us lately? We love it when uh, listeners share how the program impacts them. Here's a thought from Paul Rogers, a WGNR listener from Indiana. He says, I look forward to waking up Saturday mornings and listening online to that day's edition of The Land and the Book. It's become my first devotional of the day. And today's program was particularly interesting, more than usual, which is hard to do. Well, thank you for those kind words, Paul. Hey, how is this program impacting your life? Why not share that in a quick testimony? You can email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. And while you're in the writing mode, would you consider writing a thank you to this station for their carving out airtime to include this program? There's lots of competition for programs these days, and so... We thank you for letting them know of your appreciation for the land and the book. Well, our time is gone. I'm John Geiger saying thanks for hanging out. Love to have you connect with me and Charlie anytime. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.